The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there is a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I'm Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host. And Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. You can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show during the program on Twitter at hashtag Big Beacon. The first segment of Big Beacon Radio is sponsored by Olin College, a new kind of engineering college, a privately funded national lab for education redesign with a passion for creating inspiring learning experiences. Find out more at olin.edu. And today we're very fortunate to be joined by a businessman and social entrepreneur and bon vivant, John Abley. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to great to have you here, and and um, we want to hear about some of your uh, current interesting activities and in, in collaboration in particular. But we like to get to know our our guests on on the show in the first segment. And so, John, you you're a retired business leader, you're a philanthropist, you're a friend of Olin College. That's how we met. But let's uh, go back in the time machine. Um, what are what are some of the early influences that uh, put you on? On on the the path that uh, your life led through. Well, you know, part of it is simply generational, uh, and uh, I was uh, born in '37. Uh, I was the youngest of three boys. Um, my father was a, a military guy, uh, which, by the way, in in the late '30s was not the place to be. <laughs> because, sure. Uh, that was very unpopular in the public at that point, um, but he was in the Navy, and uh, unfortunately, he was lost very early in the war, and at the same time, uh, I, I had uh, contacted a, a pretty tough disease, so, you know, variety of things. Number one, a bit of a struggling mother being a violin teacher. Sure. Yeah. Uh, that means families like that. Uh, figure out how to amuse themselves uh, and do an awful lot of learning without knowing they're learning. And uh, in my case, three boys, um, we, uh, you know, played with explosives, uh, <laughs> doing all those <laughs> things that are sort of uh, illegal now, uh, made yeah. our own gunpowder and all of that sort of stuff. Uh, 
and made mechanical things uh, just because it was fun. Uh, We had our own club and so forth, and I was uh, uh, sort of absent for a good portion of that, but mostly sort of early grade school. I was either in the hospital or in a body cast for a long time. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, as I said, uh, that was definitely in the days of do-it-yourself. Um, this was, you know, before they had Little League Baseball and thing, things like that. So if you did play, you invented your own sports. And, uh, you know, one can argue about the pros and cons of any of these things, but certainly there's an awful lot of value in, in basically designing your own life. Uh, as opposed to being put into a uh, a formula that that grinds out certain types of knowledge, and I, I think there was one experience that I just remember disproportionately. Others, uh, when I was uh, fourteen, mm. uh, I worked in a hardware store, and initially I went there as a, a stock boy, uh, but I liked hardware stores because that's where all the fun stuff was. <laughs> and uh, so doing stocking, that helped me uh, learn where it was. But then he allowed me, the, the owner allowed me to uh, work with customers on Saturdays. And uh, it was fascinating because uh, most people would ask the customer, you know, what do you want? And uh, I said, what are you trying to do? Uh, and as a result, I would help them come up with a solution to their problem. And I just found that absolutely uh, fascinating and obviously extraordinarily enjoyable. You, know, you get rewarded with compliments, and uh, you learn as you help. And so that's sort of the belief in uh, learning by doing model uh, more than uh, studying, uh, although, you know, you do both. And in fact, if you're trying to solve a problem, uh, then when you study, two things happen. You know, the first is that you tend to pay a bit more attention. Yep. You, it sticks better. And uh, it, it's uh, uh, just generally more useful. It integrates with other types of knowledge. Whereas where you, when you're in the learning in, in school environments very frequently, you're learning in that, that silo uh, yep. where everything is focused on one subset. And that's, and, and that's so interesting. And, then, and, um, and actually, so the sort of, there's an interesting, uh, you're talking about play and then talking about, um, actually there was play and then there was kind of technical stuff. And then there was people stuff in in the in the working with people and helping them solve their problems. And if I remember your bio, you you went away to college and you you actually sort of straddled the line there too, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, a, a little a little bit. I, I I went to a liberal arts school, but I majored in physics and philosophy. Yeah. And uh, uh, th- that was sort of sort of interesting. But in all this time period. I think I was doing what, you know, David Kelly <laughs> describes as design thinking, yeah. uh, you know, rather than, than accept the definition, 
I always like what the problem was. I always like to sort of drill down and, and look at it from different perspectives. And I think that that mindset was very helpful later on uh, in, in certainly in business and in some of the other uh, projects where you frequently find people have locked themselves into a problem definition yep. that is, you know, unnecessarily narrow. Yeah. And, and I'm hearing, you know, so I'm hearing it and, and, and uh, oftentimes we ask people and maybe we've already heard, heard the answer, but I'm wondering, you know, in, in a whole new engineer, Mark, Mark Somerville and I wrote about these unleashing experiences that we think, well, we think they were important you know, back in the day, but they're super important these days when things are changing so fast. And, and I think we heard some unleashing, uh, we heard unleashing in the hardware store, we heard unleashing at play. Um, Were there, um, you know, sometimes unleashing comes uh, from someone that trusted you, the hardware store trust guy trusted you to work with customers, but were there other were there other people in your career or elsewhere or or other ways in which you learned to trust yourself uh, that were unleashing and in that sense, well, you know that's an, that's a good point. I think the idea of you know looking for mentors uh, is is always mm. just a great exercise, and you know there's there's a bit of a, a networking uh, uh, understanding, networking science to that, yep. where what you really want to do in understanding people is learn by looking at a lot of people who are doing similar things but in different ways. And when you talk to them, you find that that's very useful. You can see things from multiple perspectives. Uh, when I uh, got out of uh, college, I, I, I went to work pretty quickly. Um, I, I uh, wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I thought I was going to major in physics, uh, or I thought I was going to work in physics, explain it that way. Yeah. And I, I realized from a school point of view it came across as pretty boring and also pretty tough. And, I, you know, I didn't, uh, this was the vacuum tube days. And, yep. and, and the way they taught it was really, really dull. And uh, so I said, I, I, I didn't think I wanted to spend the rest of my life with people who did that. Yep. And so what I did do is I um, ended up selling the light bulbs. Uh, this is after having graduated from a school whose motto was Terrasse Radiant, you know, like the earth. And I was the only person who took it literally, <laughs> uh, got the message right. And, uh, but what I was doing was I hated selling. Mm. But the only thing I hated more was having something that I hated, <laughs> you know, being, you know, just the classic control freak uh, person uh, I wanted to overcome that. You know, later on I did parachuting because I hated heights and all of that, that sort of stuff. That's what you put yourself through. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it turned out uh, accidentally, when you sell light bulbs, you visit numerous uh, institutions. You visit businesses of, of all sorts. Everybody needs light. And you visit schools. Uh, you visit professional offices. And I realized that, you know, I didn't have a job. I, I was finding a job. And so I literally 
went to all these companies, and in some cases, I, I got to know the people pretty well, and in some cases, I got job offers, and uh, one of those job offers turned out to be in a small uh, uh, medical company, although, because I had, you know, was sick and I'd spent a lot of time in the hospital, I said I never wanted to go near a hospital again, but the exception was this was a company that made fascinating gadgets. And it was a wonderful sort of application of science uh, yeah. work. Yes. Let's call that engineering. And, but it was really based not on solving them in an academic way, but solving them in a really practical way. Um, in one case, we had a device that measured temperature to a thousandth of a degree reproducibly. And uh, it turns out that that is useful if you are after some of the other colligative properties of solutions, like warming point, freezing point. If you yes. measure the freezing point, you'll also measure the osmotic concentration, the osmolality, it's called, of a solution. And that's very useful for medical purposes, but, but other purposes as well. And um, so I was learning things about new technology we also had a flame photometer in this little company. Uh, that's a device that measures the concentration of ions in solutions. And uh, it was pretty new at the time. And so, you know, I could go and tell my science friends that I knew something that they didn't know about. <laughs> and uh, so it, it was a lot of fun exploring not just new technology, but the development of new technology. And very frequently when new technology emerges, the field itself is not prepared for it. There isn't a natural place for that to happen, and it frequently gets rejected uh, in favor of the older techniques for doing similar things. And I found that very fascinating. And as a result, sort of accidentally, I guess, I spent the rest of my life, and still do, working in areas of disruptive innovation. And it wasn't because it's disruptive. It's just that when you work in fields that tend to be that way, it's exciting. Uh, There's an opportunity to really discover things. There's also an opportunity to figure out how in order to take advantage of this new Field, this new technology, what's the best way to do that? That's partly social, political, definitely behavioral. I think yes. I was a behavioral scientist long before people thought of that as a, as, as a, as a term. And uh, that, that's how I got into collaboration and other, other, other areas. But the opportunity to meet people who were also in those fields was really, really great. And one of my mentors was a mentor that was really at a distance, Uh, meaning, yes, I had met him and talked to him, but not for very much. But he ran a company that uh, ended up introducing the concept of automated chemistry to the marketplace. Mm. For a market that didn't think there was any use in automated chemistry. But this man was 
quite successful in doing that. And how he did it, I watched carefully and I copied it. His name was Jack Whitehead, and Whitehead Institute in Boston yes. is uh, his gift for the fortune that he made from finding applications for that unique technology. I like the term that you used the other day for, I think you called them silent mentors. They were, they were people who influenced you greatly, but, but, but not so much directly, but, but by example. Yeah, and, and I think I, I often ask people, you know, in, in, if I'm doing the mentoring, uh, you know, who do you admire? Mm. And uh, they're either, you know, totally distant or they know very little about them. And what they know about them may be simply, uh, you know, a uh, uh, social media understanding, uh, which is usually quite perverse compared to what you may think. And so I, I sort of challenge them, why, if you would mind, why don't you find out uh, what makes that person as good as they are? You may discover that they, they may not be quite as good as you think. Yeah. And if you have a chance to finally talk to them, that can be a lot of fun and very insightful. Yeah. Now, we, we met uh, in connection with uh, Olin College, where I guess we're both official friends of, of Olin College in one way or another. What was it? Um, uh, you, how did you become a friend of, of, of Olin College? Olin's been around for almost 20 years now. Uh, yes. I, I, I became the, the charter member of the President's Council, and the reason I did is because I read uh, sort of the original write-up that when they became public, before they had any classes and so forth. Yes, yep. And uh, I said I, I was inspired by that approach to learning, and uh, I viewed it then and I view it now as a laboratory. And the last thing I think that I would like to see is a a stable institution. (laughs) I think it should be inherently unstable and constantly challenging itself. And I think, you know, Rick Miller is still the president, the the founding president, and still there. And I, I think having an institution like that that is constantly experimenting that is putting a lot more responsibility on the student and i yeah. think a lot of people felt that that was a was a major risk uh but i i think that that can be done uh at a much broader uh degree than is being done today and uh we need to take a little bit of a break right now, but I'd also like to ask you about your involvement with FIRST, and then we can maybe dig into some of your some of your work and efforts in, in trying to understand and promote collaboration. How about that? Sure. This is Big now Beacon Radio. Come back. With, okay. This is Big Beacon Radio with a special guest, John Abley, and stay tuned, and we'll talk a little bit about FIRST Robotics, and, and then we're going to talk about collaboration um, in our times.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. This second segment is sponsored by 3Joy Associates Incorporated. Get the training, coaching, and, and change leadership consultation to help transform your educational institution. And you can ask our guest, uh, John Abley, uh, questions or make comments at hashtag uh, Big Beacon on Twitter. And the second segment is sponsored by the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at WholeNewEngineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And so, John, before the break, we were we, you know, we were talking about uh, some of your early experiences and, and um uh, silent mentors and a variety of things. We we ended the segment talking about Olin, but another one of your uh, passions has been you've been deeply involved with uh, first robotics. And uh, how did that come about? Um, first robotics is is a dream of one man, uh, Dean Kamen, and uh, it's been around now for twenty seven years. Yep. And uh, I heard Dean on the radio, I think it was, uh, talking about uh, how kids learn or do not learn science and technology and engineering, and uh, I I certainly agreed with it, but Dean has a way of uh, both finding the problem and coming up with a solution, and it was in that description I, I bought into it. He recognized the real problem in getting kids to be STEM literate long before the word STEM was around uh, was uh, motivation, that uh, science and technology are boring and uh, you spend a lot of time working but you don't really see the application for the work. And I bought into that and uh, part of his strategy for doing that was borrowing from the world of sport. Mm. Let's, 
create a sport that kids will really want to play because it is cool. And cool doesn't mean you're necessarily like. Cool means you are respected and admired. You know, mm. think of the, just like a football player or, or whatever in, in high school. And it, it was focused on, on uh, high school only at that point and gradually has migrated down. So it's now from K to 12. Does not go into uh, higher ed. Uh, yeah. Plenty of that yes. sort of takes care of itself, I think. And my reason for being inspired by it and then getting involved and having that inspiration uh, verified, if you will, yep. was all the psychology of how kids are motivated to play hard, work hard, help each other. Yep. And with first, we actually call it a co-opetition. And uh, it's a co-opetition because in order to win you have to uh, collaborate with your competitor. Now, ironically, that, that's true with any sport because yeah. you have to collaborate by following rules. But uh, in the case of first, we've taken it a bit further and we design the game using game theory uh, yeah. so that uh, there are uh, all sorts of elements uh, that you have to... Uh, accomplish in order to get to solve a problem. Yes, there's a robot involved, and uh, we didn't think necessarily that robot was going to be the long-term tool for first. It might, you know, we might use something else, but robotics sort of became more interesting, so it sort of stuck with us. But the whole idea is to get a group of kids working together to solve a problem, competing in an alliance of other teams against yes. another alliance so that uh, you really have to learn how to collaborate. Yes. And you get uh, really inspired and surprised by your colleagues, including your co-oppetitors, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's a very unusual uh, structure, basically a sport, uh, but it's designed around behavioral or culture change that is really cool. Yeah. Uh, I got involved uh, by sponsoring the local Saugatuck High School team, and I remember meeting the team uh, for the first time and a young woman explaining to me how she went around to the other teams and... Um, and so her, uh, talked to them, and, and it was a beautiful example of her using her soft skills to <clears throat> further further her team. So I well, understand you know, it, a little bit of what you're talking about. Well, we, we have uh, contracted with professional educational assessment organizations to do studies. Yep. But at the same time, uh, we now hold... Uh, a lot of our competitions in college gyms, uh, and in some cases, high school gyms. Mm -hmm. uh, and we now have scholarships from over 200 uh, colleges and universities in North America, uh, representing $50 million. I mean, it's, wow. it's really pretty extraordinary. And I'm saying, you know, 
you, wait a second, you're trying to do an assessment of something that people are spending, in essence, $50 million because the students, they say, are so good in terms of what they want. You know, I, I think uh, the, the assessment uh, needs to be done by the methodology that we have developed. Well, and I think I agree with you. A lot of there's so much emphasis on assessment, and usually, you need a t-test to to find the significance of a very small difference between A and B. Whereas when you when you hit the sweet spot, it's 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 uh, it's ten x, not ten percent, and yeah. and and it almost needs no measurement. Although that sounds unscientific, but when you yeah. when you when you hit human passions and and uh, spirit, uh, it, it's it's a, a significant difference, and it doesn't need fine statistical methods to see it. Comment. Yeah, and I, I think you know one of the challenges today, and 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 I think this this is uh, kind of the unique aspect of our times, mm-hmm. is the rate of change is accelerating. Ray, Ray Kurzweil has has yep. written a great deal about this and talked a great deal about this. He's the uh, you know, a- MIT uh, scientists who uh, uh, built the first reading machine for the blind and uh, is now working. He's sort of the head scientist at uh, Google helping them to build uh, their brain. Anyway, as he points out, uh, because... Uh, technology is advancing literally at an exponential rate. Uh, the way in which you learn has to change yep. in the same way. In fact, although it's probably been always true, it's more true today that the most important thing you should get out of your education is to learn how to learn. And also to learn how how to learn about things about which you have no knowledge. So you have to understand black box theory and uh, so forth in, in terms of how do you define uh, totally new things. You even have to think uh, a little bit like, like Feynman, you know, who used those sort of silly little Feynman diagrams to, to explain uh, nuclear fission. And, uh, you know, everybody criticized, or the, the establishment at least criticized them for it. However, he was the one who got the Nobel Prize, so there's sort of a message there, I think. And it's that idea of learning how to develop new processes as well as uh, the fundamental knowledge that you need to solve a problem. And And one of the ways in which you've been interested in in this is the role of um, uh, collaboration in um, in organizations, in education, and you know, we in in many ways uh, you you talked just you talked eloquently just now of the ways in which collaboration is built into first robotics. So, uh, w- what is it about collaboration that you find so important in our times? Well, uh, that really came from my experience in medicine you know, the field that I thought I'd never go near. Sure. Uh, but I've been involved in that since 1960. And uh, that uh, experience pointed out to me that very, very bright people 
can not get along very well and end up doing really stupid things. Now, I guess, you know, everybody discovers this probably since the beginning of time, but uh, I found it fascinating in that what our company, Boston Scientific, did, uh, you know, we started out really tiny, uh, we developed some disruptive technology, but then we found people in the field, the, the so-called early adopters, uh, who were interested. Very frequently, they were not terribly credible to their colleagues, these early adopters. They tended yes. to exaggerate. Uh, they, they tended not to be very thorough. They're very, very bright, but uh, they were frustrated that nobody ever believed them. And uh, I said, you know, if we're going to be successful, we've got to solve the problem of not only finding early adopters who are credible, but make sure the early adopters who are not uh, credible don't end up poisoning the well. And by the way, that still happens all the time. And because the specialties in medicine generally, and we were involved in them from because uh, our technology worked in the heart, it worked in the brain, worked in the stomach and the kidney and, and literally anywhere in the body. And we put catheters anywhere in the body. And uh, initially they were used just for diagnosis uh, to either inject a radio-opaque dye so you could see it on x-ray yes. uh, or sample blood or whatever you might do. And I remember saying to myself, gee, we have this catheter, and in this, you know, we, we had a steerable catheter, so you could actually guide it uh, amazing well. I said, why were they diagnosing the problem? Why don't we fix it as well? And, I mean, it sounds like an insanely obvious idea, but it was viewed as uh, heretical, immoral, and unethical. That's, that's what happens in, in the medical world when, when, you, when you're new and you experiment. And uh, uh, I got fascinated by that and therefore fascinated by the need to get people to work together who don't normally work together. And I had both an asset and a liability. The asset was I wasn't in their field. Yes. Um, uh, I wasn't a threat to them, uh, but I had great toys, and they they liked those toys, and they wanted those toys. So that was that was the asset. The negative was uh, the establishment uh, ruled anything that I could say as unacceptable in the early days, and I I really believed in educating uh, as part of selling, so to speak, yes. where you don't have to sell at all. All you have to do is explain a little bit of history and how and why, and people will do the buying themselves. But in those early days, if I spoke at a medical school, I had to get written permission from the president of the medical school. That was the huge line between academia and business. 
Now, those lines have been, unfortunately, overly shredded. The pendulum have swung a little bit too far. Sure. But uh, the concept is still critical. You need as many different voices as you can get. In order to do that, you have to design a process and a system for getting people to collaborate. And uh, a lot of people will say, well, that's why people hire facilitators to do that. Well, facilitators, though, are very, very limited in what they can do. And if you get a facilitator, for example, to come to an academic institution, particularly a medical school, and get the heads of every department together in order to agree on something that the entire institution should do. Forget about it. <laughs> Forget about it, as uh, we say in Italian. No, so, and 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 uh, we have a few minutes left in this segment, and sure. I, I want to get to. Um, so, one of the ways that you've tried to encapsulate some of your concern and and uh, about uh, collaboration is in a uh, center and institute in Canada called Kingbridge. What's what's Kingbridge all about? Well, it's basically uh, a laboratory, if you will. It's a conference center that's designed specifically for really powerful conferences. And I'd have to, uh, you know, go into a lot of that. There's a lot of imagery around. There are a lot of tools around that allow people to explore and do interesting things. The design uh, of, of the institution is, is uh, rather fascinating. It's easy to get lost. That, that's uh, on purpose. And, uh, uh, and yet... Uh, there are all sorts of tools that allow people to be extraordinarily productive when they're getting together. And uh, it is our goal to continue to improve those tools uh, so that we can truly develop more collective intelligence. And I would argue sort of philosophically uh, that unless we as a society become more collectively intelligent, we're going to make the sixth extinction uh, a reality. And, uh, and if you haven't read that book, uh, it's, it's uh, uh, very, very powerful. And we're watching it happen now with the, uh, the Internet and the incredible polarization that happens in our society and the tribalism that is coming back, uh, enhanced by, you know, Twitter and the, other uh, tools that are that are there to do it, and these are tools that can do wonderful things for society, but they require somebody with a little bit of logic and knowledge and and good intention uh, to uh, guide their use. Now I, I want to follow up on this and and talk. Uh, a little bit more about some of this work and some of the advances that you're making and aiding this work um, with technology in the next segment. Okay. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, uh, John Abley, and and in the next segment, we're going to continue this conversation around collaboration and some of the way that, ways in which things like artificial intelligence and and uh, and various kinds of measurements can can help understand effective collaboration. From the boardroom to you. 
Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Our final segment is sponsored by Big Beacon's upcoming uh, webinar. Join us Wednesday, 29 March at 4 p.m. Eastern for four reasons why everybody needs a coach. Learn the four ways in which coaching can help your academic career. And learn how you can join Big Beacon's free drop-in coaching sessions today. Go to bigbeacon.org to sign up or write to me, Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org to find out more. And so we're back with uh, John, John Abeling. We were talking about uh, Kingbridge and and uh, the way in which it's a, a more than state of the art uh, conference center for having, uh, I would call them mind blowing um, uh, awareness about the what's going on in your your meaning. I think we want to explore that in a little bit more depth. But this is also connected to your interest in technology, artificial intelligence, monitoring and measurement, and the future of collaboration. And I believe Kingbridge is connected to a project called the Mind Be- Brain Behavior Hive, or MBBH, at University of Toronto. So can, tell us about that and tell us how it's connected to Kingbridge. Uh, th- that, that is correct. Uh, uh, the Mind Brain Behavior Hive uh, is actually housed within the Rotman School. The Rotman School is University of Toronto's business school, yep. but it also includes the Department of Psychology and and uh, the music department. Kind of interesting. Hmm. And the goal really is understanding uh, one's own unconscious, if you will, and how that subconscious or unconscious influences the way you make decisions, the way you think, the way you learn. Um, this, it's not aimed at uh, the medical application, uh, but it's a, a full-on neuroscience lab uh, with EEG, that's electroencephalography, yep. uh, uh, fMRI, that's functional magnetic resonance, which allows you to actually look at the brain as it's working. Uh, and uh, this is obviously being used by many people for medical purposes, but the idea is that if you have more windows into the body, uh, you can learn more, 
both as an individual, because you can have a window into your own body, uh, so for self-learning, but then even more importantly, when you're in a group, you can actually learn how to make your group more productive. You can learn, in fact, how to produce collective intelligence. Now, that may sound sort of corny in a way, but, you know, when you think uh, about it, uh, some of the collaboration that goes on, uh, you know, particularly in music, for example, where musicians do extraordinary creative things uh, collaboratively yes. uh, to produce outstanding music, or you go to a football game and people start doing the wave, and in fact, they sometimes start doing complex waves, so they're not only horizontal, uh, they're vertical as well. And maybe those are the engineering schools that do that. But uh, uh, to me, I've been fascinated by that, and obviously others have as well. And for many years, we've been aware of uh, the the language of the body as opposed to the language of the voice. Your body tells a lot about you. Uh, yes. You can tell when people are lying. You can tell when people are afraid. You can tell when people are disgusted. These are all things that we know uh, in a somewhat qualitative sense. Our interest was to actually see if we can get a bit more quantitative about that and look and see in our own uh, body senses, the EEG and so forth, and including remote sensing that can look at the face, do see micro-expressions in the face, and there are thousands of them, uh, and watch how uh, our emotions change based on the micro-expressions and the sensing we're seeing. See how those emotions change depending upon what is being discussed, who is talking, other things going on uh, in the environment uh, that may influence uh, how we think and, more importantly, how we end up making decisions that are frequently uh, counter to our own best interests. This is fascinating, and and uh, you know, to connect it with popular culture, there. So there's the television show um, uh, Bull uh, yes. about a, uh, a, a consultant who helps pick juries based in part on Paul Ekman's work on microexpressions, and then of course there was the show Lie to Me, which was based on that work. But yes, so I'm Lie hearing this as kind of a also uh, yeah. Ekman was a consultant on that as well. Yeah. So the, so but this is sort of this is a this is Ekman. Sounds like. Ekman and other stuff on steroids is what I'm hearing. Yes, uh, it, it is definitely more than that. And, and obviously, at some point, there will be medical implications uh, of this, including uh, mental health. Uh, mm. And uh, where, you know, obviously, we're in sort of a crisis mode in society with mental health, where the, the tools we have for dealing with it uh, are uh, inadequate to... Uh, either solving the problem or catching up. <laughs> we, we seem to be uh, getting uh, caught up in a, uh, a tidal wave of problems that we uh, cannot scale our present system uh, to deal with. Perhaps, perhaps, uh, the use of some of these technologies could help in that process. 
both from a diagnostic point of view and yep. even in some cases uh, from a therapeutic point of view. Uh, but, you know, with the guidance of uh, the appropriate uh, facilitator is, is what I would be calling the psychiatrist in that, in that role. Now that's so interesting, and and of course, you know, so there, you know, so we we you mentioned psychiatrists. We have th- we have people, we have therapists of various kinds in the business world, which this is closer to. We have people like coaches and facilitators, and 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 people like that whose job it is to be aware of things that the group is not aware of. When you when you're a coach one on one with someone, your job is actually very much about awareness of the things that the person is not conscious about and the ways in which there are disconnects between something they said or some way that they look or, so you, a lot of your job in coaching is to connect um, the disconnects of people back to them. So they, not to solve the problem, but to make them aware of the problem so they can go, Oh, I wasn't aware of that. What can I do with that? And likewise, uh, it seems to me that in in groups, in in team coaching, it's a similar deal that the group is in this process of doing something and working against its interests, but not even aware of of the dynamics that's going on. So your job as a coach is to sit there and help them become aware. And I'm hearing the work at uh, both the the, uh, the the basic work at the uh, mind brain behavior hive and and the applied work at Kingbridge as as um, working to be more quantitative than, than coaches can be and, and kind of um, um, figure that out. What, what, you know, it, it, so in any kind of experiment uh, work and where you're working uh, with new technology, there, there's learning that takes place. What, what do you think some of the big, the big, the big uh, rocks are that have been learned in, in this work so far? Well, I think uh, you had said it in one of, one of your notes that the whole field of, 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 Coaching and self-development has has advanced dramatically uh, from a, from a field that at one point was considered sort of a joke. Uh, you know, yep. Harvard the Business School is on the other side of the river uh, from the academic school because they didn't think it warranted uh, a uh, a role in the, the academic world. But anyway, that 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 was brought to my attention because of the medical experience. Yes. And uh, that was multiplied many times over because the disagreements in medicine, uh, well, first of all, cost uh, not only many lives, but huge amounts of, of resource. Yep. And uh, to the extent that you can get these various departments to, in essence, think about redesigning themselves. In other words, we need some mergers and acquisitions in medical academia, uh, partly because we've learned a lot of things that, that we didn't know about, uh, and we also have tools to do things that we couldn't do uh, before. And so one of the things that uh, happened in this field was the development of what's called the, the live demonstration course. And uh, it's in which a patient is treated um, real-time in front of a group of physicians, not yes. all of them specialists. They, they may be general or maybe different types of specialists. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the, the way in which that is constructed uh, is designed 
to produce collective intelligence. And it's, it's, it's kind of amazing. It was started by somebody outside of the establishment and has maintained primarily its existence outside of the establishment. But this format, the live demonstration course, is now practiced around the world. And when you think about this concept of a very open source type of dialogue in which a presenter who was a surgeon and a talker at the same time uh, and is using all the tools that you would have in a sports event, uh, not just video, but multiple channels of video, uh, including, you know, the vital signs uh, and so forth, uh, and, and pictures inside the patient as well as outside the patient, uh, yes. and of the physicians themselves, which is very important and educational for the audience who is watching this real time and is not only watching but they are participating because they are equipped with audience response tools. Uh, n- now that tends to be Twitter, uh, but it's, it's actually put up into a screen, so everybody yep. sees the questions being asked, and that actually performs a very good function because uh, you're less likely to do really stupid questions because you're going to yep. embarrass yourself because uh, in that case you Got are one, identified. One minute left. Yeah. Yeah, so, so uh, yeah. We've got we've got about a minute left, John. So I'd like to give you the last word. Um, this is exciting, very exciting work, and um, uh, the the work in at University of Toronto and at Kingbridge is uh, very exciting and and offers some uh, possibilities of deeper understanding of of these important issues, both uh, in organizations and education. What what would you like to leave our audience with, and how can get, they get in touch with you uh, to find out more about your work? Uh there, there, I, I suppose I give a, a caution with, with an email, but I would be happy to uh, give people uh, contact information. Uh, the, uh, my, my Cambridge address is Abley J, A-B-E-L-E-J, uh, at KingbridgeCenter.com. And Kingbridge Center is uh, K-I-N-G, then Bridge, uh, all one word, and then center, which is also all one word, but it's Canadian, so it's C-E-N-T-R-E rather than E-R, and it's .com. Great. John, thanks so much for joining the show. Best wishes to you in, in all, all of your activities. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Nice, nice enjoyable conversation. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Special thanks to John Abley. Help transform higher education. Join a movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.